0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to season three of the Adventures of OT podcast. I'm really excited about this season as I will be speaking to occupational therapists who will be telling us more about what they do in their specialized fields. Now, if you're new here, welcome, welcome and welcome to the Adventures of OT family. And if you're a returning listener, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for your continued support. the benches of OT, talking occupational therapy, welcome to the benches of OT, talking occupational therapy, OT is the remedy, helping people with daily activity, welcome to the benches of OT, talking occupational therapy. My guest today is first and foremost a mother, a wife and an exceptional occupational therapist. The one lesson I learned from my guest is the power of letting go. If you have an issue that won't affect you in five days, five months or five years, just let it go. For those of you who may have younger siblings or children, you may know of the movie Frozen where they sing, let it go. So I advise you to let it go. Our guest today is a senior occupational therapist at an occupational therapy rehab ward in Cape Town and is quite passionate about the field she has chosen to work in. My guest today is an individual who strives to ensure that she brings her A-game every single time when engaging with clients. Allow me to welcome Linda Carstens.
1: Wow, <laughs> Kanya, that. <laughs> was such an intro I feel so special thank you for that (laughs) no thank you very much Uh, um, I'm glad that that's the the lesson you took away from your time spent with me Um, it's quite a nice life lesson to have
0: certainly and I think especially now where you know you're at home and we're all in each other's space sometimes you just need to be like you know it's fine. I'll let this, this, this issue go. You didn't wash the dishes, but it's fine.
1: I'll do it. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so I know that you gave birth um, during the COVID-19. What um, challenges did you experience, you know, with the whole pandemic and then having a newborn baby?
1: Um. I think I gave birth right, literally right before uh, Um we went into lockdown. So two weeks before lockdown, um, my daughter was born, um, and I was, I spent the whole maternity leave with both of my kids at home. So my five-year-old was here, locked in with me and the new baby, and my husband was working full-time. He was an essential worker. So I did find that to be quite difficult, juggling everything, being locked into your house, not having your support system nearby, not Having the opportunity for my parents to just come and, you know, drop some food or friends check in, um, I mean, they do they did check in virtually, but it's not kind of the same thing. So I did feel that um, I did feel that on 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 my shoulders. I I did feel a bit alone. Um, my husband is obviously he's hands-on, he's great, he's wonderful, Um, but sitting alone at home with two kids, trying to adjust to a new normal in in the midst of a pandemic where we still need to adjust to a new normal um, was quite difficult. Um, But I have to say um, the adjustment was okay. It took some time, but it was okay. I think when I went back to work and when my daughter went back to school, um, we really, fell into our roles much better so it's been going better Um, yes so it was interesting
0: yeah and I think that's the one thing about the pandemic that you know everyone's occupational roles have been disrupted and we're all just trying to figure ourselves out um, with everything with, with this new norm that we're currently living in
1: absolutely absolutely
0: so Linda why did you um, you know decide to study occupational therapy
1: um i've uh, all my students asked me this uh and i i have to be honest the profession kind of chose me um i had my mind set on becoming a physiotherapist uh that was done and dusted i was like in grade 11 this is what i'm applying for and then i shadowed one for two days and i just didn't felt the connection um The physio then suggested that I shadow her colleague, who was an OT, and obviously, like the rest of the world, I didn't know. I had no clue what an OT was, but I just went ahead and shadowed her, and I just fell in love. I enjoyed the variety. I enjoyed the patient contact. I then started looking into it as a profession, and then the funny thing was, when I came to my parents with... Um, you know this new decision Uh, my mother told me but you know just go and get your results from when I went to for a psychometric assessment the year before in grade 10 Mm. and then my second choice I remember um, the psychologist said was uh, physio but then I went to look at the first choice and I saw that this guy said a year ago that I'm supposed to be an OT and it was really just meant to be um so that's how I kind of uh, um joined this wonderful profession
0: the law of attraction basically (laughs) you Um, are correct yeah so you're saying that you know you dabbled into a, a variety or you enjoy the variety in the in the profession so what other fields of occupational therapy have you worked in
1: so um I obviously did a community service year where I worked in the community clinic in Mitchell's Plain, um, and there, obviously, it's a community block, so you see everyone and anyone who needs intervention, but then after ComServe, I had a year experience in private practice pediatrics, um, and then I got into my job now where um, I am in a mental health care facility, um, Stickland Hospital. So, I have some experience outside of psychiatry, but psychiatry is definitely my main area of experience.
0: So what would you, you know, describe the role of an occupational therapist um, in a psychiatric um, setting?
1: Okay. So um, I think it depends on where in psychiatry, because acute versus therapeutic programs, you um, a kind of different uh, I think the intervention approach is different in the acute setting the approach will be more f- focused on the bottom-up approach in other words addressing the components of function impacted by the illness first like orientation concentration they do obviously also look at self-care and and um that would be then bottom down, but I think they do really look at components of function where, in my setting, a th- more therapeutic set- setting, um, I prefer the top-down approach. So I look into the functionality of the clients in their daily occupation and, and life roles and then assist them to be successful in that, in fulfilling those roles once again, while still managing their addiction. So. For example, assisting a client to be a parent and doing all of the tasks relating to that while still managing their sobriety. I think also the big picture in psychiatry and actually OT as a whole is just reintegrating people into society and helping them to live full lives to the best of their abilities while managing an illness, whether it be physical or mental.
0: Mm. Certainly. Um, and, and then why would you say it's, you know, important for, to address these skills that, um, you know, the, the clients may have a deficit in?
1: So I think it's important for us to impart skills that the client need to be able to fulfill their role. So if you need to fulfill a, a role of being a caregiver or a, um, You know, a a parent, you need to be able to cook. And if you, in mental health care, a deficit might be in physical endurance because of depression or um, because of this as a side effect of medication, you as an OT need to teach alternative ways or uh, energy saving ways in order to do that activity. So there's where skills building comes in so that the client can be as successful as they need to be in their community and home environment.
0: Mm. Um and I, I think I'll, that's what I also love about the occupation that you know occupational therapists work to ensure that or improve a client's functioning to the best level that they possibly can. Yes. Mm. So whilst you were you know describing this why it's important to to improve these skills you mentioned occupations such as you know cooking and just the roles or that one would engage in um what are occupations for someone who doesn't know what an occupation is when defined in an occupational therapy terms
1: so occupations is very plainly uh, described just as what you do what we do it's just the doing of a task so um my occupation as a mother would be um, putting in food for school for the next day. That's an occupation that I engage in. Um, even cooking, uh, I cannot say cleaning because my husband cleans, but he, that's an occupation that he um, is involved in. Um, my occupation at work, the occupations that I engage in at work, is not only my occupation as an OT, it's also... Uh, sitting in meetings and doing assessment of clients so occupations is to do something um, as plainly as what I can put it put it
0: yeah and then um, in your particular setting you work on life skills so what assessments do you normally conduct on the
1: so um, I need to be realistic uh, in how I assess clients because I see everyone in my ward. And it's not really realistic to individually assess every single client for hours on end. So I have to be efficient. So what I like to do is I love using the HUDAS, um because it's self-administered and it also gives me um, great insight into the client's own insight into their functionality so I can also see does this client lack insight do they have good insight Um, I also use uh, mostly the model of creative ability the MOCA Um, that's my guiding model for assessment and treatment Um, this is an invaluable model which I really love as well as the PEO so the PEO is good for me to really put my clients into context into their perspective um so that's two of my favorite models but then I also and but I use the models to assess them as well and then I'm also APOM trained so I'm trained in conducting the activity performance outcome measure so if I do need a more in-depth assessment or uh, I have to write a report on a patient I like to use the APOM because it's very thorough. And then I would also say that my most important important assessment tool is my clinical reasoning skills. Um, I think it's, it's invaluable. It's something that's developed over years, but if you can get it right, then it's really, really the best tool we have as, as OTs.
0: For someone who's still, you know, A new OT in the profession or is still studying occupational therapy. What tips would you give them? You know, to have those great clinical reasoning. uh, um, Wow, the biggest
1: thing you can just give yourself is time. Um, I think time, time, time. You do not develop critical clinical reasoning skills in a month or two months. You. Uh, develop it over a course of years mm-hmm. and you need to really be confident in in your patients um, diagnosis so you need to have the the, um, the textbook side of it and also your OT textbook side of it and then you integrate into it into what you see um, and how it presents in the real world um, so I do think my tip would be give yourself some time you are not going to get it perfect. I still don't get it perfect. Um, but be willing and open to learn from mistakes or learn from successes. Um, I, that's the most important thing, I think.
0: And then um, what does the DSM-5, also known as the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, um, state when it comes to you know, alcohol use disorder?
1: So the criteria um, is, it's, it's, there's quite a long list of symptoms, so you have to have at least two of the symptoms, okay? So number one is you have times where you end up drinking more or for a longer period of time than you it intended to. Number two is you have uh, wanted to cut down or stop drinking and you've tried it, but you couldn't spend a lot of time drinking or then being sick of sick, sick from getting drinking or the after effects thereof. So in other words, recovering from the drinking afterwards. Um, number four is you wanted to drink so badly that you could not think of anything else. So it preoccupies your mind. Number five, you found that drinking or being sick from drinking, so what they call the bubble us afterwards, um, that that impacts your ability to take care of your family and your home or causing job problems Mm -hmm. or school problems. So in that terms, it says it impacts your functioning. And then number six says, you continue to drink even though it was causing trouble in your family and friends. Um, so, in other words, you, you know it's a problem, but you just continue doing it. Um, number seven, you have um, given up or cut back on activities that were once important or interesting to you or other things that's given you pleasure. Alcohol has taken the place of that. Um, number eight, more than once gotten into situations that increases your chances of getting hurt. So that would be would mean risky behaviors, right? So that would be um, unsafe sex, mm-hmm. driving while intoxicated or swimming even while intoxicated. Um, number nine would be continue to drink even though it was making you feel depressed or anxious or any other health problem. Even blackouts fall under that category. So if you continue to drink even though previously you've had a blackout, um, number 10 had to drink more than you once did. So in other words, there's an increase of alcohol use in order to get the same desired effect. So you need to drink more in order to feel drunk. And then number 11, um, you found when the effects of alcohol were wearing off that you had withdrawal symptoms. And that would be trouble sleeping, shakiness, restlessness, nausea, sweating, heart racing, and then in the extreme cases, even seizures. So those 11 things, you need to have at least two of those symptoms. The more symptoms you have, the more severe the alcohol use disorder is. When I meet the clients. I m- make the subtle changes that I need to make in order to make it specific to them. Um, so, so I know that you know this is in my you know bag of tricks. This is icebreakers I can use this is activities I can use this is discussion points I can use but then really to if when as soon as I get to know these clients then I decide this is the route I'm taking um, getting there because it's not a one size fit all type program um, and we do need to individualize uh, where we can um, so that's quite important I also do Think that it's important to go off of your clients and where they are in the group process, because you also can't do altruistic type of um, activities, you know, sharing and and giving advice to each other if they are at the complete beginning of um, the cycle of change. So if they are still in denial, then you, you would not possibly able to do altruistic type of activities. So you really need to gauge where they are in the cycle of change as well as the group process. And that's where I decide, you know, what treatment uh, to use when. You can also use the client who is in change, maybe uh, the the, the, the active change to your advantage, like as an ally in your group. And they can... Um, impart knowledge and, and you can also use the, the curative factor of universality in order to kind of get the person who's still in denial on board uh, and that's the value of, of group therapy really. Um, it's, it's using all of these curative factors in order to move through a group, group process so that um, everyone can move forward um, if someone gets stuck, it does happen, um, not everyone is ready to move through the cycle of change, some people leave still being in denial and that's also okay, we're not going to save everyone, um, they might, might need more time um, and that's okay, we'll welcome them back um, as soon as they, as they are ready to, to, to change. I think individual therapies is quite good you know psychotherapy um, but I cannot stress enough the value of the group process in addictions treatment um, it's so valuable for learning new skills or behaviors because the clients get feedback from their peers on their changed behaviors so they get feedback from each other for poor behaviours, but then also feedback, positive feedback for changed behaviours. Group psychotherapy, what I do, uh, and as I mentioned, the curative factors um, or otherwise known as your Lom's therapeutic factors, they are so valuable and can be very powerful in a group setting. I, I think of how valuable universality can be because of, as I mentioned they feel so alone um, when they're at home just using alcohol. Um, they tend to feel so alone. and They feel like no one understands what they are going through and how they are feeling. And then they get to the rehab, and then they experience others that are going through the same thing that they are going through. And they don't feel as alone anymore, and they be- become to feel more hopeful. Um And that's also where the installation of hope comes in. So it's quite powerful to see in practice. Um, As I mentioned, um, altruism is also another factor um, because it's the act of receiving by giving. Someone gives advice to someone else and then they feel valued because they gave advice to someone else. And I see that very often. Um, And... I, I don't feel like that can be achieved in individual therapy always. Um, but group, the group process allows for that to happen. and mm-hmm. um, That's why I love group so much. Yeah.
0: And then for someone who, you know, they've now in a general sense, you know, they've gone to rehab and, you know, they've received treatment, but they're still going back into an environment, you know, where, there's still all these precipitating factors and you know all these stresses that you know maybe had forced them into maybe drinking consuming alcohol or maybe taking drugs. How do you say? How would you say an environment impacts or influences one's choice in, in occupations?
1: I think the environment plays quite a significant role because um, we we've seen in research that there's really three things that really impacts uh, a, a person's drinking behavior and that's the person themselves so their personality their um their social experiences even traumas that they've experienced genetics plays a big role because there's proof that there is a genetic component to addiction but then a very very important part is their environment um stresses in their environment violence in their environment um Uh, I think that we cannot discount the value or or the disadvantage that uh, an environment provides the, the client. I think that's why ongoing support is so important because they're going back to those environments. So they will need ongoing support. It's not like you come to REACT for four weeks, now you are cured. It doesn't work that way. You're going back to the setting in which you were using alcohol. Um, And that's why we would like to do follow-ups, or you need to join an AA or a support group in your area. And even in now, our times, there's virtual support groups online as well so that's so important but environment is, is as important as the person itself
0: yeah, Definitely and um, you know there's a more um, context to that what is a lapse and what does it mean when someone relapses
1: oh yes uh, this is one of the things where when i describe this to my clients it's kind of like an eye opener to them because everyone thinks a lapse is the same as a relapse uh, and it's not it's really not i can describe it best by using uh, an analogy um that a colleague of mine described where Imagine that you are going to go and climb Mount Kilimanjaro and you spend all this time um, getting all of your equipment in place, training hard, you are ready, you put everything in place for you to go and climb Mount Mount Kilimanjaro. And then you get there and you start climbing and you're almost, you know, you're halfway up and getting there and then you have a misstep and you slip and you fall bit, you know, like you slide off the mountain. And then you, I mean, you're sitting there and you're thinking you have two choices. You can either get up, um, dust yourself off, see that this path is too slippery and take a different path. And the other choice is to give up. And we describe a, a lapse in the same way. So you going to rehab you getting clean you getting everything together is like preparing for this um, journey you're about to take then the journey is itself is climbing the mountain because it's like climbing a mountain and then the slip is really the lapse Mm -hmm. that it can really happen to anyone you can just be in a bad situation something traumatic can happen, you can just make a bad judgment call and you can slip. In other words, you can have a drink once. Um, I, I usually need to tell my clients, this is not me giving you permission to have a drink and say, no, it's fine. Linda said I can do it. No, it really is just a mistake, a fleeting mistake that you make. And the thing I really stress is that I don't want clients to make that one mistake and then give up. Because then it would be a relapse. If you give up and go back down the mountain, that's then when you allow a relapse to happen. When you dust yourself off and you find a different path, that is when it was a lapse. You made a lapse in judgment. You made a bad call but I'm getting up again, I'm going, I'm doing this, I'm trying my best. So that is really the difference between a lapse and a relapse. And I do stress this with clients. Don't give up if you make one mistake or even two mistakes or even three mistakes. Don't give up. Just try again. Yeah.
0: Um, and I think that's sometimes maybe what is, 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 what challenges them or they have that mental conflict because then it's a matter of, you know, I've already had this first drink. So they tend, people then tend to take that road of, you know, maybe just consuming alcohol and getting that at mm-hmm. the bottle and the next bottle, um, instead of saying, you know, this was just a lapse and I can continue. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. Variety.
1: And that's why I, I have a tool that I use with the clients. We we do these kind of cards where if you, if you do have a lapse, if you do make a mistake, you know, here's your reminder. It's, it's not the end of the world. Don't give up. Just try again. And, and as a reminder, we make those little cards and it's small enough to fit in a wallet or in your pocket so that it's always with them. Um, so because they do need the reminder sometimes. Um, if you're in a bad way, uh, you feel they can feel like like failures and then they kind of need the external motivator to get going again, to get up that mountain again, mm-hmm. um, and that's an important role that I that the OT plays plays in an addiction setting. So yeah. yeah.
0: Um, and you know, I wanted to actually take a look at the South African statistic. How does? Um, because I mean, we're one of the top countries with you know alcohol consumption. When it comes to alcohol consumption, um, so how does it impact clients or anyone with an alcohol use disorder like all these advertisements that they see on tv and i mean when you walk to a super spa or any store really you, you'll you find that right in, next to that store there's maybe like a, a bottle store um so how does that then influence a client who isn't trying to live a life of sobriety and you know there are all these what we call yeah. So that's them.
1: the difficult part, right? So you you are correct. We are the fifth highest consumers in the world in terms of um, um, alcohol. Uh, we sixty percent of South African alcohol consumers are classified as heavy or binge drinkers. One in every three men hev- drink heavily or binge drink. That's an alarming statistic one in every five South Africans binge drink at least once a month and seven percent of our population have an alcohol use disorder or some kind of alcohol dependence. Um, I think the important thing to note is that we in South Africa have a drinking culture. It doesn't matter your race or your religion, alcohol consumption takes such um, a Part of our cultural identity. Um, I'm just thinking, for example, of Umkomboti, who that it forms part of the Isitkosa culture, cultural practices. It's literally part of a cultural practice to consume alcohol. Um, My own Afrikaans uh, um, community. on Sunday after church, when you have your Sunday lunch, it's almost customary to have a glass of wine. Um, I know uh, um, in in the colored community, uh, alcohol consumption is part of funerals. You know, it's literally just part of our daily lives. Um,
0: And yeah, sorry to cut you, but even when it comes to, you know, watching sports, um, watching soccer, people are consuming alcohol, it's yes, always i think absolutely really and
1: and i was i was speaking to someone the other day about this is because we have such a drinking culture that if we if our team wins we celebrate by drinking and if our team loses we are sad and then mm-hmm. we drink so it it really it, it it's really the, yeah. that's really the problem our children grow up seeing that this is normal alcohol behavior which it's not um, and then if you combine that with a genetic predisposition for developing a substance use disorder, it's r- literally a recipe for addiction. Um, and then as you as you said in your, in your question, then advertisements are all around and it's going to be even more now because, because um, alcohol resellers are, Going to push their product now more than ever because they were not allowed to sell for so long. So advertisement is probably going to increase, um, and 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 that really does uh, um, do something to a, an addict psyche because everywhere you look is there's alcohol. It's a visual trigger. It's a a a auditory trigger because it's on the radio, we are speaking about the alcohol ban, we, so we're literally just speaking about alcohol all the time, and for someone who's trying to live a, a life of sobriety, getting all of those triggers all the time is very distressing, um, and, and they need to have the coping skills in place to, if it comes on the radio, change the station, if you see there's a shop within, that sells alcohol inside, go to a different shop. You know, don't expose yourself. Try to limit your exposure to your triggers as much as you physically are able to do. And above and beyond that, just I always say when it comes to triggers, you either avoid and if you can't avoid, then you manage. Then you manage what you come into contact with. So it's so difficult right now, I think. Yeah, the drinking culture really is a difficult thing.
0: Yeah, I saw it especially during the you know the lockdown. Um, with amongst my peers, where people would just say, every time the president you know would, would have an announcement, you'd see people's statuses like, "Oh, can't you just open the alcohol? We don't mind if the country's closed." And for me, that is such a scary culture that. You know already, you're seeing eighteen year olds and even younger. Um, you know who are already. Yep, um,
1: it's. It, I also noticed that. that um, of even myself. I mean, I am not immune. I'm not being a hypocrite. I also enjoy, um, you know, some wine and, and, but also having it in your face the whole time. Uh, that's problematic because that's what our kids see. Um So it 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 has to be the most difficult thing at the moment. every almost every second sentence regarding lockdown in South Africa has to do with with alcohol at the moment. So yeah
0: So now I'd like us to you know come back into the medical health profession, and you know, as you said earlier or before that you know when you started the profession, You didn't really know what occupational therapy was, and there's also like a number of people who don't know what occupational therapy is. So, how do you cement yourself as an occupational therapist um, amongst your so
1: um it you know what I am quite an assertive person. So, for me, I have always felt comfortable to assert myself into my role. I do understand that that's not the case for everyone, especially if you come into a setting where there's an established team and you are, you know, the new one. But I do think that the most important thing is asserting yourself right off the bat. You need to to, to make your role clear. Um, you need to engage with your team members you have to open up the conversation about what your scope entails this is what I do as an occupational therapist this is why you refer to me this is the type of things I'll see and if you feel like if you if, if your colleague feels that you need to address something or then you need to discuss that with each other I think that's where Open communication with your multidisciplinary team is the really the most important thing because you benefit your client's treatment when your team works well together. Yes, uh, communication is, is key even with your client because mm-hmm. you need to also tell your client what you are doing is not okay. Um, so it's not just between the MDT. Your client is, is actually part of the team, of the care team so you need to have open communication with your mdt yes but also with your client
0: and um, what approach do you as the or what approach does the mdt take so
1: we MDCT? have we make to use of client. the psychosocial rehabilitation approach because our aim is to reintegrate our clients back into their communities um, in a functional way. Uh, but we also make use of motivational interviewing where appropriate. If someone is stuck or on the cycle of um, change, they aren't moving along, then we'll use motivational interviewing as well. And then we really also emphasize the multidisciplinary approach because we each have an important role to play. And that ties back to psychosocial rehabilitation.
0: What advice would you give a student who has been placed in an alcohol rehab ward or who, who is looking, you know, to, um, to work in the setting think like that one day?
1: It's very important to stay open-minded. Um, people who have addictions are not bad people. I think that's really something that you need to, to, to cement into your brain. Just because these people have addictions does not mean that they are bad. They have an illness. Um, and we have to be empathetic towards that. Um, and when you really get an understanding, um, of that, then you will have the ability to be a wonderful, wonderful therapist. Um, my other advice and, and I, and I, think I gave this advice to you Um, I know you spoke to Sikha in one of your previous podcasts and and I remember telling this to Sikha as well Um, is be open minded also about running groups because it does not come naturally to everyone and that's okay Um, you can learn to be a great facilitator if you are willing to use constructive feedback to improve your skills and you know what? You just need to be willing to 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 roll with it, to to take take feedback, use feedback, improve. Take feedback, use feedback, improve. Um, so that's really the two things I I I'll tell someone: be open-minded and also be willing to put yourself in a difficult situation that you're not comfortable with always, and learn from that.
0: I also find that at times you know uh, people don't want to put themselves in those difficult situations where you because as much as we say i'm open to feedback but then when you do get that criticism mm-hmm. to help you improve your fight yeah you no and i but i also defensive. think
1: you know what's important also i i work with students quite a lot um i think the mode in which you give feedback is just as important because you as the clinician also have to give feedback in a certain way. If you criticize, criticize, you're doing this wrong, you're doing this wrong, you're doing this wrong, then your student is going to shut down. Your student is not going to be accepting of feedback and you are going to, um, to harm that relationship. So I, I think it goes both ways. Yes, the student needs to be open to, to feedback, but I also think that the clinician needs to give feedback in a way that you do not criticize but rather um, constructive criticism constructive feedback Um, and I also I'm a firm believer in positive reinforcement so I believe that um, if they do something well tell them what they did well and then you can go on the things that can improve and I really feel like that way of handling students works well in my setting and, and, and I've had um, success with that.
0: So, no, Linda, I know that you're quite passionate about psychiatry and specifically the ward that you're working in currently, but what else can we expect? Um, from You, you are right. I am
1: career? very passionate about psychiatry. I am very passionate about addictions. Um, it really is an area um, that I want to explore more. So, in in the further future not right now I have two small kids who that requires my focus at the moment um and most evenings I'm just quite (laughs) tired but I do think that I want to do research in the future I I I am open to thinking about doing uh, my master's but I will do that um focusing on addictions I think um we need that in South Africa we we don't have enough uh, evidence-based practice in South African context when it comes to addiction interventions and occupational therapy. And um, I think that's an area um, that I can try to explore more. And I have the basis to do it at my hospital. I have the clientele base to do um, um Um, research so that is my hope for the future Um, but like I said uh, for now it's just little sleep and lots and lots of coloring in with my kids and feeding and cooking and cleaning
0: (laughs) (laughs) anyone who you know they were listening to this podcast and they feel oh, I think my dad may have these symptoms or maybe I have these symptoms or anyone in the family, um, where can they get help? Like, is there a contact number? Yes, I think firstly, it's important
1: to recognize that um, what your loved one needs is empathy and love because people with addictions are already ostracized enough by society. Um, I don't think people realize really realize that it's a psychiatric illness of the brain and and what our loved ones need is is support um, when they feel supported they will be more open to what you have to say and this is true I have seen it in practice um, you if you create a supported environment for them then, they are usually more open to to what you have to say and to treatment. I also have experience that forcing someone into treatment um, is not a long term solution. They might do it to keep you happy now, but you really need their buy in. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you if you do need advice, um, the two resources I can give you today is the Department of Social Development. Substance abuse line. It's a 24 hour helpline. Um, the number is 0800 12 13 14. And you can also SMS them at 32312. They can call you back. So those are the two numbers. Um, and then the other wonderful resource um, is SADAG's um, uh, website. So that's the South African Depression and Anxiety Group. Um, It's www.sadag.org, and they have all the resources available on there that you might need should you want to explore um, treatment options or want to check, you know, is this behavior uh, um, an addiction or or anything like that. That's the two uh, um, resources I think is is important to, to look at first.
0: Um, when even with that, you know, looking up these symptoms and you, you feel like, oh, my word, I'm ticking five of these boxes. Um, people tend to be really scared then to seek help. What advice maybe would you give to someone who, who wants um, to seek help? I'm glad you asked this because
1: my advice would be when you pick up the phone, you are about to change your life. You, when you accept help, or recognize that you have a problem and then seek help, you are in the process of changing your life. Um, alcohol use disorder is a chronic progressive illness and that means it's chronic, it's lifelong and progressive means it gets worse and worse and worse. It's not going to mellow out, it's not going to go away, it's going to get worse and if you seek help uh, it does not matter what age you are at. Just You can be 18, you can be 60. I've seen them all. But you, when you accept help, you are going to change your own life. Um, and if you are willing to change your life and breathe a sigh of relief, then pick up the phone and call for help.
0: One thing that's always, you know, we place emphasis on that as students working with clients or as even occupational therapists working with clients in rehab settings that, you know, it's all about you. You are at the center now. You're doing this for yourself. Yes. We understand that you, you may be saying you're doing it for your children and family members, but
1: you yes, are. Yes, yes, absolutely. When, when people come and they and say, the "Oh, state. I'm worrying about, you know, what's going on at home and, and I'm worrying about work. And then, and then I usually tell them, well, if, If you are not okay, then your home life is not going to be okay, and your work is not going to be okay. So look after yourself first. My mother always taught me you can't pour from an empty cup. So you can't look after anyone else. You can't do anything else if your cup isn't full. So get the therapy, get the help, and fill your cup up because then you'll be able to mean something to someone else as well.
0: And um, we've reached the final segment of my show. <laughs> okay, you've listened to the message and all the OT lessons. You're running out of seconds. It's time for the final segment. This is a minor reminder of what you're all about to witness. Rapid fire with Kanye. Welcome to five fire questions. Five fire questions. Today's segment, I'd like you to answer. So I'll give you a phrase um, and then you will answer either in one word or a sentence. So I asked Linda, what is the one lesson that she's learned from working in psychiatry?
1: Um, I'm able to adapt quickly, um, think on my feet very quickly. And even in my private life, that's an important um, quality to have.
0: What is the best advice you've received from a colleague?
1: Put yourself in your client's shoes. Um, I think that's where um, empathy develops. I got that advice from a, a colleague years ago. Uh, if you're struggling to empathize with a client, just imagine that you're, you are in their shoes.
0: What is the biggest misconception when it comes to OT?
1: misconception is that we are there to keep clients busy, Mm -hmm. um, which is obviously not the case. Uh, Even though we we are involved in leisure participation um, for our clients, it's because there's a plan in place. We want clients to engage in proper leisure activities. It's not to keep them busy. It's not simply to keep them occupied. It is to teach them new skills in order to keep themselves occupied when they return back to their own environments. Um, so that's the biggest thing. I'm a big, big um, defender of um, not <laughs> keeping patients occupied, but rather getting them engaged in activities that are important to them.
0: I further went on to ask Linda, what is the mantra that
1: she lives by? You can dream it, you can do it. Um, it's been my mantra since... Primary school, believe it or not, um, I saw it somewhere on a good luck card someone made me and it's always stuck by me. If I can think about something, dream it, see it in my mind's eye, then I can do that. It took some inspiration from Steve Harvey mm-hmm. in you need to assert what you want your life to be. You need to say... I project that positivity and then positivity will come to you. So, I do also believe in that. So, if I dream and I believe, then I will achieve.
0: What has motherhood taught you?
1: I have grown to be so patient since the second one came and I was like I mentioned in lockdown with my two kids and I, and my uh, other ma- mantra that you mentioned at the beginning of the segment of let it go really plays a big role there in patients. Um, I'm frustrated sometimes. And then I just tell myself, these are small kids they rely on you. Just be patient. Just take a breath and let it go. Um, so, motherhood really has taught me patience.
0: I'd just like you to, to repeat that number for people to call or either to SMS.
1: lot um... of Social Development Substance Abuse Helpline, it's a 24-hour helpline. It's 0800-12-13-14 um, or you can SMS 32312. Mm-hmm. So that's the D's D's um, substance abuse helpline. And then SADAG's uh, um, website is www.sadag.org. That's www.sadag.org. In you doing, creating this podcast, because I think it's necessary. I think there's, there was a niche there that needed to be filled. And I've actually listened to all of the shows. So um, I, I actually think what you are doing is quite special. So well done.
0: I thoroughly enjoyed my conversation with Linda. And if you did too, please do share it with two of your friends you feel may enjoy this podcast. Do head on over to our social media platforms at The Adventures of OT on Instagram and Facebook and tag us and say what you liked particularly about this episode. Please do follow, like, and subscribe on all our social media platforms. I truly enjoy the engagement that I have with you as the audience. Until next time, from me, Casey Ford's. like to extend my greatest gratitude to Theo for coming through with the beats and the soundtrack for the Adventures of OT podcast. Theo, you are able to bring to life what I had in mind. Thank you so much.